text this morning is Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 25. If you want to be turning in that direction, you'll find that on page 916, if you happen to be using one of the Pew Bibles. If you're just joining us this morning, we're in the middle of a series on the book of Acts. And each week as we open up this story of the early church, we've been taking a look at what, what God is doing, that He's a God who's on a mission. And that's a mission that is to us, and a mission that's also through us. God's on a mission bringing His goodness and His forgiveness and His grace to us in the person of Jesus. And He's also on a mission through us as we are transformed by the gospel. He uses us to be a part of His mission to the world around us. He's on a mission to us and through us. And we've been seeing that in various ways each week as we look at Acts. This morning we're going to be taking a look, as I said, at Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 25, with a, at a notorious character in the life of the church. Um, so let, let's pray together, and then we'll, we'll turn to Acts chapter 8 together. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would open up your word to us, that you would speak to us, because we are a people, whether we realize it or not, who need to know you. And therefore, we're a people, whether we realize it or not, who need to hear from you. And you do speak to us in your word. So we pray that you would do that for us this morning. Open our hearts to your word, your word to us. That we might not only hear these words, but be transformed by it, by you, through the power of your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Acts chapter 8, 1 through 25. Uh, This is opening up on, on the heels of the persecution of Stephen, who was just put to death. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your, heart, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. 
For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Our text this morning has to do with greatness and what it means to be great. And I was thinking about greatness this week when uh, I received the, the periodical uh, the, or the periodic um, alumni journal that comes from my college where my wife and I graduated. So if, if you receive one of these, maybe you do what I do, what, what, the first thing you do is you, when you get it from the mail is you, you turn to the back to find the listing of the year that you graduated to hear what all the people you graduated with are, are now doing. And invariably I'm depressed by the books that are being written and the, the PhDs that are being awarded. And it's, this magazine comes from me like this great big book of greatness and achievement. And uh, one of the most striking ones on the one that came this week was I, I read about a, a girl who was a classmate of mine. She was in English classes with me. And I read that uh, this past summer she married Steve Martin, the comedian. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, how strange. So, <laughs> But in the middle of this, this book of all these achievements, here is this person who... who who married somebody famous, okay, and immediately brings these pictures of at least the fame of, of greatness. And I thought, you know, who would have thought when I was in English class with her that, that would be her fate one day? Um, <laughs> but it reminds us, you know, and, and maybe you've had brushes with fame or brushes with greatness. And those kinds of stories, I mean, they just sort of grab us, whether you like Steve Martin or not. Well, this story is a story about greatness, too, and what makes someone great. How does greatness work out in our lives? And one of the things I think we're going to, the thing I think we're going to see in this passage this morning, is that the gospel has the power to bring a real and lasting greatness into our life. The gospel has the power to bring a greatness. And we're going to see that this kind of gospel greatness in three ways. We're going to see it demonstrated in Philip's life, and we're going to see this gospel greatness denied by Simon, and we're going to see this gospel grace displayed in Samaria. They all start with the same letter. Demonstrated in Philip's life, denied by Simon, and displayed in Samaria. So first, let's look and see what it says about this gospel greatness. As it's demonstrated in Philip's life, if you notice reading through this passage, two people stand out in, in sharp contrast. You've got this guy, Philip, and you've got Simon. And so we're going we're to turn first to Philip and see how gospel greatness worked out for him. And one of the first things that strikes is, again, the setting here is that the, the church is undergoing persecution. And the first few verses of chapter 8 says that everybody, except for the apostles, gets scattered out of Jerusalem. Okay, there are thousands of people that have been following Jesus. And persecution heats up and everybody is, is cast out of the city as they literally run for their lives. One of the interesting things it says about these people that have been displaced, look in verse 4. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Okay, now no doubt there were people, as we're going to see with Philip who were officers in the church, who were the professional preachers. But what's interesting about this verse is it says that all these people, as they evacuate, as they flee, as they go to new places, they preach the word that they are people who come and bring the gospel greatness to others. So the first thing that we see in this gospel greatness with Philip is that he's freed to preach, to go and speak about the word, uh, the word of life that has set him free. Okay, he goes and he... And he preaches. They, he has the, the, uh, the honor, I guess, in Acts of being the first missionary that's named. In the middle of lots and lots of missionaries as the church is sent out through persecution. So this gospel greatness that grabs a hold of them, it frees them to preach. 
But look where he goes to preach. And this is what's maybe even more remarkable about Philip. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Okay, he goes down to Samaria, Samaria, which, as you might guess, is full of Samaritans. Okay, now, that might not sound like a bad thing to us, right? We're all familiar, we're familiar with the story of the good Samaritan, right? Samaritans are people that help poor, waylaid, you know, stranded travelers on the side of the road. Well, the, the whole reason that story in Luke 10 about the, the parable of the good Samaritan had punch for them was because the Jews hated Samaritans, and the Samaritans returned the favor. There had been a rift between the Samaritans and the Jews that goes back a thousand years. A little bit of uh, Israelite history after the death of Solomon, David's son, the next king to come forth, the next you know, descendant of David, under his reign, the kingdom breaks apart into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So the southern kingdom is the tribe of Judah, and the northern kingdom is everyone else. And from that point on, the northern kingdom falls more and more into idolatry and apostasy. And after about 300 years of this, in, in 722, the Assyrians come in and haul off most of the people in the northern tribes. And then they replace those people with imported settlers from other lands. And so now this land that's known to us as Samaria became settled with these people who, as the Jews would have regarded them, were, were religious and ethnic half-breeds. They were syncretists. They were, had this mixture of Israelite religion and pagan religions, and they were despised by the Israelites. They had a separate place to worship away from Jerusalem. And there's this huge tension between these two groups of people. One of the things that the greatness of the gospel does for Philip is it frees him from his prejudice. Thousands of years of this rift. And where does Philip go when he leaves Jerusalem? He goes to the hated enemies. He goes to the despised ethnic group up north. He goes to bring the hope of the gospel to the Samaritans. Now, up until this point, before everybody was kicked out of Jerusalem, the gospel was going forward to people just like us. And maybe not just like us, but just like them. Culturally largely homogenous, ethnically homogenous, and now sent out to their near neighbors who are very different and despised. Philip is freed by the gospel from his prejudice. But we also see that he's freed from something else. He's freed from his pride. And one of the ways that works out, this gospel greatness that frees him from his pride, he's now freed from the need to be the main character of his story. And I think we see this most clearly in, when we look at Philip in contrast to Simon. So let's take a look at Simon. This is verses 9 through 11. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he was himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest. This, is the man, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So here you have this magician Simon who along with the rest of the Samaritans professes belief. And we see that up until now people had paid attention to him from the greatest to the least. Everybody in his culture was enamored with Simon the magician. Simon, the one you could go and perhaps pay when your, your finances were not going the way you wanted them to, when your lost love was walking out the door, when your health was failing. How are we going to manipulate the universe in order to be more kind to us? We're going to go to Simon the magician, and he was revered by these people. He amazed them. Think about the people that have amazed you. Um, I read this week about the death of a childhood hero, Evil Knievel passed away this week. 
remember Evel Knievel, if you grew up in the late 60s or the 70s, you know what I mean as far as why he was this hero. He was this incredibly courageous guy that got on his motorcycle and jumped over absurd things, including the Snake River Canyon, and he didn't make it over. And he was known for all his broken bones and broken and broken bones. And for years and years, for a decade, he captured people's imagination with these incredible feats. I read some a, a, a compilation of people's odes to Evel Knievel as they've mourning his loss. And one person said, you know, he reminded us of what courage is in an era that was too dominated by the Brady Bunch. <laughs> so, evil Knievel, to some small degree, capturing the minds of at least of small, small children. You know, here in Samaria, who was it that grabbed their attention? Who was the headline guy in Samaria? It was this guy, Simon. And Simon is someone who had begun to believe his own press, because look what it says about him. They revered him as someone great, as this power that was called great. Okay, likely this was some sort of divine title. And in some sense, they apparently thought Simon was some sort of physical manifestation, incarnation of God himself. Here's this divine presence in their midst. Simon's story, in the middle of all his working of wonder, in the middle of all his magic, Simon's story was about his own greatness. But into this world and into this place steps Philip, who comes and also amazes the crowds as uh, those who are possessed by spirits are freed, as those who are paralyzed and sick are healed. Utterly amazes the crowd. And they turn their gaze away from Simon to listen to what Philip has to say. Verse 6 and 7, the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice. Many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. As Philip comes and proclaims, not himself, but the greatness of another. Not the greatness of his own power to work miracles and wonders among them, but the greatness of Jesus who is bringing his salvation and his healing and his help into their very midst. And what happens? How do they respond? It says great joy. And then it also says, verse 12, when they but when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. They turn and come to a new faith. As Peter, or excuse me, as Philip steps into this, freed by a new greatness, to no longer be the main character. He comes pointing to Jesus, and people's lives are radically turned around and radically changed. So he's freed from his pride in that way, but he's also freed from his pride in that he no longer has to be the only actor on the stage. I, I mentioned this college journal that I received this week. One of the other stories in there was about a visiting professor that's at my college right now. And he's a, a, a professor of uh, theater, and it tells in his little bio about all the awards that he's gotten in the local press for his one-man show in which he portrays 34 different characters in this play. He's everybody, right? <laughs> and we're amazed by that. But if you look at Philip, he doesn't live his life like that. He's not the only actor on the stage. And we see this because, look in verse 14, Philip drops out of the picture. After these people profess belief and after they are baptized, the apostles come up. Peter and John come up to verify what's happened. And for the rest of the verses we've read today, we don't see Philip's name again. Was he angry? Had he been outshone by the apostles? 
Had they come and said, step aside, it's time for, it's time for the apostles to do their work. Philip knew that he was a part of the mission of God, and he had one role in it, and others had a different role, and Philip stepped aside. Now, we're going we're gonna to jump right back into the story next week and hear another story about Philip. Philip has not been relegated to the sidelines by the apostles, but he's come and done his work here, and the rest of the team comes in. Philip doesn't have to be the only character on the stage. The greatness of the gospel has freed him from that obsessive need. I just thought about it this week. How many people are on my stage? How many people are on your stage? As we seek to be people who are great. Well, we see this gospel greatness demonstrated by Philip. We also see it denied by Simon. Look in verse 13, this remarkable change. It says, Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Simon himself professes belief just as everybody else around him does in Samaria. And he is baptized. This apparent conversion. What's going on? Because we, it seems that the greatness of the gospel has begun to get a hold of his life, but then look what happens to him later. Picking up in verse 18, when Peter and John come, and they lay their hands on people to receive the Holy Spirit, we're going to come back to that in a minute. Simon's response is he looks at him and he says, how much do I have to pay you so that I can do this? So that I can go around laying hands on people and they'd receive the Holy Spirit. I'm amazed by this kind of power. What's it going to cost me to have that? And suddenly, Simon's heart is on display for everyone, at least for Peter, to see what's really going on. Now, the story is interesting because, um, in many ways, the, the tension of this story is left unresolved. If you notice at the end, at the end of Peter's speech to him, you don't know what Simon's going to do. Was he somebody who really converted and then just was badly mistaken? Was he somebody who never really grasped the goodness of the gospel? What's going on with him? Well, in some ways, the story doesn't exactly tell us. But it's interesting, in the early church, in the 2nd and 3rd century, the church fathers looked back to Simon as the archetyp, archetypal subverter of the church. He was credited with being the one who was the founder of Gnosticism, which was this kind of uh, religious hybrid of Christianity and, and Greek mystery religions. Now, there's probably no reason to really think that Simon did that, but the point is, in the early church, from the very beginning, they looked at him as, as a villain, as somebody who was coming in to destroy the church. And I think, if nothing else, it's clear from the way Peter speaks to him that something has gone badly wrong. Whether he was somebody who had come to faith and now was struggling or somebody who never did, either way, what he is doing now is under the harshest critique. Look at what Peter says. Verse 20, Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither lot nor part in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. Pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart might be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Peter looks at him and says, Your money is going to perish, and so, and so are you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. He looks at him and he says, Your heart is not right, and you are in the chains of wickedness, is what he's saying to him. Not a very promising diagnosis for Simon. What's going on? What happened with him? He professed, he believed, apparently. 
He was baptized. I think Simon shows us that it is possible to have an intellectual comprehension of the truth of the gospel and not really have a heart level change. Because Simon responded to the preaching that was happening. He heard what was said and he professed belief. But something deep inside him had not changed because Simon's love had not changed. What did he love before Philip showed up in Samaria preaching? He loved power. And he loved recognition. And what does he love after his confession of faith? He loves power. And he loves recognition. He looks at the apostles and he says, here is a power beyond anything that I've known. How can I buy it? How can I have that power for myself? He had made maybe this intellectual ascent, but the affections, the love of his heart had not changed. He was still amazed by the power of the gospel, but he wasn't amazed by the grace of the gospel that comes in to change us. Tim Keller tells a story about a person he knew in college. He said there was this guy on his college campus that was this renowned womanizer. Everybody on campus knew it. And he dramatically uh, makes a profession of faith and converts to Christianity. And much about his life drastically changes. He no longer goes chasing after the women in his college. He becomes this upstanding, upright person. But he goes on in the story to say that as time went on, this guy became a part of their Christian fellowship. And every time they had a small group Bible study or every time they were in a meeting together, that this person always had to have the last word. And he always had to have the right answer. And he was always jockeying for position that he would be the one in charge, that he would be the one leading. Keller makes the comment that he had made this outward change, but the affection of his heart had not changed. Because when he was a womanizer, it wasn't about the girls at his school. It was about power. And when he became a Christian and walked into a Christian fellowship, it wasn't about Jesus. It was about power. Like Simon, it's possible to make a confession of, of faith and be unchanged in the core love of our heart. This morning as we had the Advent wreath and the Advent reading, we're thinking about uh, the season of Advent, which is a season of awaiting the coming of Jesus. And historically, that's been a time of longing and anticipation and expectation. Longing for the coming of what? What was the longing you had as a kid? It was the longing of the coming of new toys for Christmas and new Atari games and new Xbox games and for you as an adult, Advent, the longing for what? What's the thing we're waiting for? What's the thing that we are hungry for? Whose coming are we longing for and why? What kind of greatness do we hunger for? In Simon, we see a gospel greatness that's been denied. But then finally, we see a gospel greatness displayed, displayed in Samaria. Okay, look what happens to the people around him. This incredible change in conversion. They were people who were caught up in an old greatness and an old amazement. Verses 11 and 12. What were they amazed by previously? By the power of Simon. They were in his grip. They, they had their eyes fixed on him. They were amazed. And then the gospel comes in and gives them a new amazement. A new greatness. A new grace. And we see that in, in deed and in word. Because Philip comes and he gives them the deeds of the gospel. People are People are healed. People are set free from physical brokenness, this incredible demonstration of the power of the gospel that comes with Philip. 
and the message of the gospel that comes with him as he proclaims not himself, but Jesus, the one who is great. It's easy for this to pass us by, but as we said with Philip, that he's freed from prejudice, well, so are they. Because this rift between the Samaritans and the Israelites went both ways. And here the Samaritans, they accept a Jewish man into their midst, preaching a gospel that was unknown to them, and they convert. They turn because they see this work that Jesus is doing of building one church, one people, one new people. And the greatness of the gospel comes in changing them. Now, one thing just, just to note here, because it, it can really be confusing. If you notice here, the, the Holy Spirit is delayed in its coming in his coming to the people, right? And that's, that's unusual in the book of Acts because we read that, they're, that they profess faith, they're baptized, and then the apostles come and lay hands on them, and then these people receive the Holy Spirit. So maybe you're, you're listening to this thinking, I, I don't know any apostles. <laughs> I don't remember anyone ever laying hands on me. Do I really have the Holy Spirit? What's going on here? Well, it's clear from the book of Acts that what's going on here is something unusual, even for them. If you were to look back to Acts chapter 2, verse 38, I'll read this. This is in Peter's very first speech as, as people first come to faith in this proclamation of the gospel. And Peter says this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. From the very first day, what does Peter proclaim? That the Holy Spirit is intricately and inextricably bound with faith in Jesus. And Paul says the same thing in Romans. He talks about if you've come to Christ, then you have the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't have Jesus. Okay, those, those are things that are, that are welded together. But for some reason, it's delayed for them. Commentators, of course, go back and forth about why that might be. But here's one way of looking at it that I think is really helpful. For a thousand years, there's been this incredible cultural rift between the Israelites and the Samaritans. And what happens here is they receive the gospel. And as Peter and John come up to verify that, could it be that the Samaritans, the Samaritans, come into faith? As the leaders of the church in Jerusalem come up, lay their hands on them, and they see the Spirit poured out on these people, it was undeniable to them what had happened. That the grace of Jesus is for the Samaritans too. Who would have thought? So maybe what's going on here is that this is actually a gift to the Samaritans, this delay in the receiving of the Spirit, because it was so vitally important that everyone know that the Holy Spirit was putting together one people of God, not the Samaritan branch and the Israelite branch. We'll see later in the book of Acts, not the Jewish version and the Gentile version, one people united by the same Spirit, and the apostles could come back to Jerusalem and say, we saw it ourselves. The Spirit poured out on these people, bringing real greatness, real change, the greatness of the gospel. And this greatness they found was the greatness of Jesus. Listen now, this is the first stanza of our Advent hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Waiting for Emmanuel to come and ransom captive Israel 
waiting for Emmanuel to come and ransom captive Samaria. Finding this Jesus who came to ransom captive us here and now. Bringing us a new greatness, the greatness of Jesus. May that be the thing that we see and long for this Advent season. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we confess that you are the one who is great. May we know and taste that greatness even more. Would it free us from our pride? Would it free us from our addiction to being the center of the stage? Would it free us from our prejudices? By your Spirit, would you set us free to love you? Would you be the greatness that captures our imagination this Advent season and always and right now? We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.